Dotnet Rocks episode 880, recorded live Sunday, June 2nd, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. The noise you're hearing in the background is the crowd at the Norwegian Developers Conference in Oslo, June 2013. This is where we are right now. Indeed. In the Oslo Spectrum in our fishbowl. Yeah. Well, we always record some shows, but I really wanted to get a Space Telescope show done right now. Yes. Um, and there's we'll talk of reasons later on in the show. Well, it turns out there's some timely things happening that we Very time think you need to know about. Yeah. But before we start that, Richard, somebody's talking to us. Grabbed a comment off of show 864, and that's the one we did on Thorium. Thorium. What a great show. It was a great, great show. And uh, we got a bunch of comments on that show from Rod Adams. Right. And he was one of the guests on a nuclear show On before. the nuclear show before that one, the Nuclear Entrepreneur. Yeah. And so uh, he listened to the show and clearly enjoyed it. But one of his comments got into, it was towards the end of the show, when we were talking about the different types of turbines. Right. And Don Larson, the guest we had on the show, was an advocate of this very futuristic model of thorium not mm. only the molten salt reactor which i totally buy into right. and using thorium as a fuel because you know you could use re- uranium in, in molten salt mm-hmm. right it, it's just a different reactor style sure. as opposed to light water or heavy water or anything else molten salt is another design it's cooler and a different fuel right because they're also using thorium in light water reactors if you want right but the third thing he was talking about was next generation turbines mm-hmm. particularly the helium turbine and uh uh rod mentioned here that because we were talking about methods of transferring heat, right? right? When one of the challenges here is you're generating heat in the nuclear reaction, and then you are trying to transfer that heat into a secondary coil or some way to get that heat to the turbine right. without making the turbine radioactive in the process, exactly. right? So it has to be contained somehow. It has to be contained. Secondary it has to be loop. exchanged uh, over to a secondary loop in some way. And it's one of the strengths of the molten salt design is that it's very hot mm. without being under pressure, mm. Right, So you're getting these 800-degree temperatures, but it's not a pressurized vessel. So it doesn't have all the dangers of the light water reactor where you have to pressurize water to get that kind of temperature out of it. And so those high temperatures make it fairly easy to do heat transfer because it's naturally quite efficient. And uh, uh, Don was talking about doing that transfer with helium. But Rod says, you know, if you're using uh, the the liquid salt reactor, you can use salt-to-salt transfer. So you could have a separate... Salt-to-salt? Yeah, so salt-to-salt transfer would be that you have the salt loop that's that's actually got the radioactives in it, and then you have mm-hmm. another salt loop. That so isn't the, radioactive. That isn't radioactive. Ah. So you could be doing salt-to-salt transfers to provide uh, heat to a clean secondary system. And there really is no advantage using the helium loop, because the mm-hmm. whole point with helium is that you can't make helium radioactive. Right, it's inert. And it handles very high temperatures, right. but it is a gas that's tough it's to trap. hard to contain and all of that Yeah, because it's helium. It's right. very tough to keep sealed as a very a small molecule. Right. And the... But Rod brings up the biggest point here, which is this, there are no large helium turbines being manufactured today. So mm. when you're talking about building a 300 or 600 megawatt 
power station, mm-hmm. there are no turbines of that size in that design. It's all experimental. Okay. And this is something that came up in the show right. that we were really concerned about this. Right. So how right. many things do you need to innovate on to really make sense? Mm. Rod goes on to say, with a clean heat source, I would make it dead simple to use an open cycle Brayton gas turbine generator using atmospheric air as the working fluid right. and using the atmosphere as a heat sink. So there's a that's a loaded sentence right there. What is a Brayton? So this is a particular type of turbine design where all you're doing is heating up air to make it spin. Hmm. And you're just using atmospheric air. So it's not a closed system. It's a completely open system. Okay. You're just heating air. Now, okay. you are going to dump some of that waste heat into the atmosphere, but it's clean heat. So what's the drawback of that? It seems like air probably doesn't heat up as much as water does well, or when retain you, its heat. Yeah, it, it doesn't. But you've got so much heat because... The salt mm. runs at such a high temperature, it's not hard to heat up air to make those turbines turn well. Yeah. The big strength here is, as Rod says, there are thousands of variations of the open cycle gas turbine generator available today. Mm. The temperatures that Don mentioned would be most effectively used by taking a 1960s vintage turbine, since those were not designed to handle the very high temperatures of today's most efficient units. So what you're saying is because salt has so much heat... Yes. You have so much heat, you can heat up the air to the point where it can drive the turbine without corroding anything. Right. And you don't have to pump another fluid. You don't have to contain something. Mm. Like, it's it's remarkably simple. Simple. And this was the point we were trying to get to in the show, and Roz just reinforced it here very nicely for us. It's like, look, you're already innovating. Right. You're using... uh you're, you're, you're needing a new fuel chain in the form of thorium, which is not hard, easy to do. Mm-hmm. You need to scale up molten salt reactors, which we haven't done either. Mm-hmm. You don't need to innovate on turbines mm-hmm. here, right? We could innovate on turbines, but it should be a totally independent thing. Mm-hmm. The fact is, these turbines already exist. And I think the biggest case we made in this show was dropping a molten salt reactor into an existing power plant. Right. Which already has the power lines running to it, which That's already right. has turbines running to it. Yeah, there's no need to create a whole new site. Don't have to create a whole other system for this. Yeah. It should be an add-in and a really effective one, one that can use the fuel that's already at the site. Right. And one that that helps clean up existing reactors to some degree. Still a lot of research left to be done. Let's mm. not discount the fact that molten salt reactors have not been scaled, mm. but they can be, and it would make a big difference. Sure, it's exciting. I want to move on past that and say thank you so much to Rod, and a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps for Android, iPhone, Windows 8, and Windows Phone 8. And Windows Phone 7. Yeah, well, I guess we'll work on Windows Phone 7, too. Yeah, sure. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises that are making mobile apps for all kinds of things, including podcasts. You can find them at DiatomEnterprises.com. So we're talking about space telescopes today, but before we get off Thorium, Richard, somebody sent us uh, a ki- uh, information about a Kickstarter for a documentary that uh, these two guys from Ireland are making about uh, Thorium, right? Yeah, this is a couple of young guys who got hooked on Thorium, much like we have, right. but a couple of years ago, and being filmmakers, they just went out and shot a whole bunch of footage. They they flew on their own dime, yeah. they researched all over the place, gathered a whole ton of awesome footage, yeah. and they're now ready to actually make the film. It's great. But now there's no more free anything. You yeah. know, Now comes the expensive editing time sure. and actually getting it cut and ready into an actual documentary. Yeah. So they're using Kickstarter for this final phase. They're looking to raise 40,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. It's not a small amount of money, but 
the potential here is for a really what I like is it's a couple of young guys, right. it's new generation thinking. This right. is not industry thinking around thorium. Sure. And so they've really collected some cool stories, both positive and negative, and they just got this last little mileage. So I'm gonna help recruit the the .NET Rocks listening audience. Absolutely. If you're excited about thorium, kick these guys a few dollars. Just pre-order the DVD. That's all we're really asking. Sure. Pre-order the DVD. The uh, the Kickstarter is called The Good Reactor. Nice. And it's about thorium molten salt reactors. And, and how so, much is the DVD? Uh, you can you can donate whatever you like. Sure. But they, for a uh, uh, a donation of only ten pounds plus shipping, uh, you can get a retail copy of the DVD. When Kick them fifty pounds, kids. Yeah. Just you, go do it. Kick him 50 pounds and get some special thanks, you know, actually be in the credits of the show. That and they thing. still have some money to raise, so it's not like they're out of the woods. Nope, they're not out of the woods yet. They got about another, uh, at the time we were recording this, about another 12,000 pounds to go. Mm. But they got 10 days, mm-hmm. and that should be enough. You yeah. know, it, it is possible to get this done and to get a, a new, fresh look on the thorium reactors I out of the world. I would love to see it. Awesome stuff. Yeah. And the links, you can certainly go to Kickstarter and search for the good reactor, but in the show links, I will be putting this Kickstarter. Awesome. All right, so what prompted the Space Telescope was another Kickstarter. Absolutely, yes, the Arkid Kickstarter. So this all happened while we were in Toronto. Right, while we were in Toronto, the Space Telescope, uh, the Arkid Space Telescope actually got launched as a Kickstarter. So these are the Planetary Resources guys. Uh, now, who are they? Like, so, you, like I'm supposed to know who they are. Well, they, these guys were in the news recently. So Peter Diamatis is not some a name that a lot of people know, but he's the guy behind the X Prize. Oh, right, sure. So they, that's the, when Burt Rutan uh, managed to, to fly Spaceship One and won the, yeah. the X Prize. Same guy, but he's recruited the Google guys, uh, Sergey sure. and, and Larry. These are a bunch of Silicon Valley guys with lots of money. So there's a bunch of billionaires their... hanging around together. Said, "Wouldn't it be fun to mine asteroids?" They, yeah, they want to <laughs> make the world better, and so they they launched this project where they're going to make a small space telescope that is for the people. Right. And this is what we loved about it. It's for the people. Well, the whole point here is they're building these telescopes anyway. The research is done. They're going to launch lots of them because they're using them to survey asteroids, which is good for their ultimate business of mining asteroids. Also good for us in that wouldn't it be nice to know where all the asteroids are before they hit us? Yeah. That would be a feature. I like that idea. And then along the way thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea to actually put one up in a way that anybody could use it? Yeah. You, could, you can basically, for a fee, point it at the target you want to point at and take a picture. And so... Now, what they did for the public one, which I think is very clever, is they basically strapped a tablet to the outside of it yep. and then put a camera on a mask looking back at that tablet. At the tablet. So they're going to put your picture on that tablet with the Earth in the background, and for a fee, you can get your picture taken in space. Yeah, that fee's 25 bucks. Right. So for 25 bucks, you send them a photo... They upload it to the space to the space telescope and then take a photo of your photo on the telescope in orbit. That's funny. Uncle Bob just walked in and joined us, so he's laughing over here because yeah. it's, it's just great. I just fun. think it's it's a great scheme. It's so brilliant, and and of course it goes up from there. Like if you want a video of yourself, there's another yeah, fee for they're, that. There are HD pictures. You can actually pay to get a. Would you like your own high resolution photograph of the moon? Or any other yeah, celestial body other that celestial it can reach. Of course, it's only a million dollar telescope, so it can't reach back to the Big Bang. But uh, but and then if you really want to get involved, the bigger thing here is is, is educational opportunities. Yeah. So for seventeen hundred fifty dollars, you can actually sponsor a school of your choice. Yeah. That allow the kids 
to select targets to get images from and to get all this educational information this from this telescope. So cool. It's a really clever idea. So now, I sent an email to my kids, all of them, and I said, hey, who wants a picture of themselves from space with the Earth in the background? I'm buying. Interestingly, <laughs> none of them said me. Nice. I don't know. I don't know why. They don't realize how cool that actually is. <laughs> now, needless to say, this thing landed really well, right? Everyone's pretty excited about it. It's clearly going to make its goal of a million dollars. So they've added some stretch goals on top of that. So the million dollars is the minimum to actually get the satellite up and so right. forth. If they get to 1.3 million, that'll actually fund a second base station. So they'll be able to communicate with the, the telescope more often. That just mm -hmm. means more data transfer. Mm -hmm. If they get to, uh, there's a couple of mystery goals at 1.5 and 1.7 million. But if they get all the way to 2 million, mm -hmm. they're at, instead of funding a second telescope, which right. would be cool. It would be cool. Instead, they're actually, they've developed some new technology they want to add to it, but it's going to cost them some money to do exoplanet detection. Okay. Uh, okay. So planet detection like around other stars. Around other stars, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the Kepler mission, which I think sure. we'll talk about a little later Absolutely on. Absolutely, we will. So it's an interesting idea. This is, by the way, this telescope is small. Yeah, it's, it's like 30 pounds. 30 pounds, right. right? It's small enough you could pick it up and carry it around. That's <laughs> what's clever. The technology is advanced to a point that it's that small. Yeah. They could, they're able to launch these things for relatively little money and with yeah. lots of capabilities. So the idea that we get to $2 million to actually do exoplanet. All right. So what's the Kickstarter name? Uh, the project's called ARKID, A-R-K-Y-D, ARKID. And I'll include the links in the show notes, of course. All right, great. But if you go look for Space Telescope on Kickstarter, you will find it. So that started us down the road of, hey, maybe we should do a geek out on Space Telescopes because it turns out there are a lot of them out there, and they cover a wide range of the uh, of the spectrum. I think the current census is there's about 25 telescopes of some form or another in orbit right now. And are most of these used by universities and you know people doing research, NASA, for example? Yeah, they're government research projects, yeah. right? I mean, that's what makes our kids so cool, right? It's yeah. actually for the public. It's use. for the people. Yeah, but also the vast majority of those telescopes are not in the visible spectrum. So let's talk about spectrum. When we talk about these different frequencies that we can pick up, what are we really talking about? Well, this is all energy in the end, right? It's really a question of how rapidly that energy is fluctuating. What's the cycle of that? Right. So it's a frequency of energy. That's right. And in that, band, that electromagnetic range is visible light. Right. It represents a very small portion of the overall right. spectrum, but it is a chunk of it. So, and so what are the ranges that we're talking about? X-ray is one? Yeah, X-ray is in there. If you talk about really, really, really high frequency energy, you get into the gamma ray range. Okay. And gamma rays are really interesting because they typically, gamma ray sources generally mean something fairly important out in the universe. Yeah. Things like quasars and Solar black flares holes, and things. right? They come up in the gamma ray frequency range. Yeah. So that's why they're interesting at, at the uh, astronautics level. They can also level. kill you, can't yeah, they? Yeah, they are a little dangerous. Yeah, a little dangerous. Well, and it turns out the planet is really good at protecting you from right. them. That's which is our, one of the reasons we need space telescopes in the first place. It's yeah, hard exactly. to measure gamma rays from the surface of the planet. Right. But as you, and at the other end of the spectrum is, is, uh, radio waves. Right. And radio waves, when you get to talk about long radio waves, you're literally talking about meter long waves. So the low frequencies, Extremely very low, low very slow waves. Yeah. And, and radio astronomy is a whole other thing. In fact, our first geek out, if you really talk about the very, very <laughs> first geek out, you talk about ICARS. 
Yeah. Remember that pro the project was yep, down yep. In, in in Australia, the yep. the radio astronomy uh project, yep. which we really we didn't call it a geek out at the time, no. but that's was when we were talking about this incredible it was big computing data problem. was the name of the show. Really big data. Yeah, really big data. Yeah. The where they figured out if they were gonna build this huge radio telescope, then it would collect more data in a week than all the radio telescopes had ever collected in history, That's so right. they might as well store everybody's data down there. There aren't enough hard drives in existence yeah. to store that kind of data. Yeah, really interesting problem. Yeah. So there is a big spectrum out there, and there are different space telescopes that cover different chunks of the spectrum. Okay. So why would we, for example, want to look for gamma rays? Well, gamma rays tend to speak to important events in the universe. So they're, you know, solar flares like aren't... Like quasars and yeah. pulsars, yeah. two that and, you mentioned. And, and uh, new stars being born and, and uh, supernovas, really, really high energy events emit right. gamma radiation. Okay. And so that's very interesting to go track those and gamma And radio rays. frequencies, more of a sign of what, intelligence perhaps? Uh, Isn't that what SETI and the movie Contact is all based on? They they went through a whole bunch of different spectrums. Radio astronomy, again, huge subject. We could probably do a whole show just right. on that alone. Well, uh, we did talk about radio waves being uh, generated when certain compounds are are mixing and uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, like there the, is a chemistry to it. There's a signature, the radio signature, to determine the chemical makeup of certain. Well, and you bodies. also do that in spectral analysis, which is in the yeah. visible range. Yeah. So, but you're right. Ra I mean, radio astronomy has been around for a very long time because the radio spectrum uh, shows up. And in different parts of the of the universe shine at different frequencies, yeah. which is why we end up with all these different telescopes. Right. You know, you talk about in the microwave range, uh, Kobe, C O B E, the, was was the background explorer, and it was able to find the sort of microwave tapestry of the Big Bang. Huh. They, it actually showed, you know, the, the confusing part about the if the Big Bang was true, remember, it's just a hypothesis, sure. is why is matter then clumped together in this weird sort of pattern? Right. And the uh, the background uh, uh, microwave experiment showed, yeah, it's actually the manifestation of a, of a larger expanding energy ball. Okay. And that it actually lined all up. But that's just, you know, straight up microwave science. From so we've got radio, universe. microwave, gamma ray, and what's the other? Uh, infrared. Yeah, it's another spectrum range. So when we when we talk about the really big space telescopes, um, most of them come from the shuttle era. Mm -hmm. So one of the things the shuttle was designed to do was to lift very right. large observatories, and there was a set of observatories called the Great Observatories mm -hmm. that most of which were lifted by the shuttle. The shuttle had its own set of problems. Yeah, and arguably Hubble's the most famous of the bunch. But sure. let's talk about Hubble later. But the David Letterman top ten Hubble Space Telescope uh, excuses, and the number one was. Bum with squeegee smeared lens at stoplight. Nice. <laughs> uh, the first of the great observatories was one called Compton, and it was a gamma ray observatory. Okay. And, and it was so big. It was like 35,000 pounds. Yeah. Like it was bus sized. Huh. Uh, and uh, it was very controversial at the time because NASA intentionally deorbited it because it was breaking down. So it was still operational. When uh, when they actually deorbited it, what they were worried about was enough stuff was going to break that they couldn't control its landing because right. it was big enough it was going to make it to the ground. Oh wow! It was an interest. You know, these are things we were just learning about. Mm. We used mm. to loft these little satellites mm -hmm. that burned up, so it just wasn't that big a deal. But once you're hauling thirty, forty thousand pounds around, <laughs> turns out that stuff's going to hit the ground. So as the system starts to break down, you get concerned about that and so they actually caused a controlled re-entry of an operational spacecraft because hmm. they weren't confident enough that it would continue to be operational and they could control it later on in life that was better than the skylab option 
Yeah, yeah. you're totally right. I mean, in the end, we lost control of Skylab right. and fortunately dropped debris across the outback of Australia where there was no <laughs> whole lot to hit. So, you know, when we talk about this little 35-pound telescope, obviously it's it's, you know, got some good optics on it and things have gotten better. But it's not going to have the power of, you know, a Hubble or no. a James Webb telescope. No, and 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 Hub- the thing that's astonishing about Hubble, and it's easy to go research the, the whole history of Hubble if you want to get into mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that this was actually a spacecraft designed by uh, a scientist named Spitzer going back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. But because of the Challenger disaster, it was so big, nothing could lift it. Right. And so, and it was meant to be maintained, which they actually did do. And it's lucky because they screwed up grinding its primary optic mirror right exactly it got ground in the 80s but it sat on the ground till the 90s and then when they actually flew it they turned out it was myopic yeah which is which is sad it is sad <laughs> I, I i had the good fortune to actually meet story musgrave once and story musgrave is was this the was one of the lead astronauts on hubble in the first place and mm-hmm. when it had the when they discovered the problem on hubble he was the part of the team that devised the solution for it and then flew to Hubble and repaired it. Huh. So uh, he was a keynoter for a conference I was at. Wow. And when he first he, he first came out, he started fiddling with the projector. And he said, is this in focus? Is this in- <laughs> I'm a little sensitive about these things. <laughs> it was hilarious. Because, <laughs> yeah, he was a little sensitive about it. But I would argue the thing that happened with Hubble was amazing. Is it turns out when you can make pictures of the universe, people get really excited about it. Right. And uh, and that's what Hubble did more than anything. My favorite picture of all the Hubble photos is the deep field observer. Yeah. So the the thing that's magical about Hubble, because it's still a low Earth orbit uh, spacecraft, mm-hmm. in order for it to point at a particular space, a particular point somewhere in space, it's constantly rotating. So it's whizzing around the Earth. And if you oh, want right. to look at one spot, you yeah. actually have to have the telescope constantly turning to stay on that spot sure so these reaction wheels inside of hubble to allow it to maneuver like that to stay pointed on one spot as it's orbiting the planet over and wow. over and over again i can't imagine how precise that has to be in order to not because you're talking about something that's zoomed in for lack of a better word very very especially when you talk about deep field right deep field they literally pointed at the darkest spot they could find I in mean, the sky you know one little shake and, and it that wouldn't thing work. wouldn't work and what, what happened when they ran, so the deep field observation took months. So as this thing's going around and around in orbit, taking all the other pictures it needs to take, it keeps going back and looking at this one dark spot in the sky. Right. And in collecting more photons, collecting more photons, mm-hmm. collecting more photons. And after months of composing all those images together, what did they see but literally thousands of galaxies? Right. It's just this moment where you realize you know, we think we're small yeah. and that our galaxy is big. Yeah. There's a lot of galaxies. Right. Some, of the, brought- some of the pictures that we saw in the 90s of, you know, all of that, st- of those galaxies and those, oh, you remember those crab nebula clouds and things like these beautiful photos just reminded you how really, really freaking small. Yeah. Very small. Our galaxy and most is. And most oh. of the imaging that Hubble did was imaging of things within our galaxy. Right. Incredibly beautiful things throughout mm. the galaxy. Yeah. And then the deep field shot, the deep field shot showed, oh, and by the way, 
more galaxies than you can count. Yeah, right. And that's just, it, but, and Hubble is amazing. Mm. But Hubble's also old now. I mean, that technology's yeah. been around a long time. Right. The shuttle's now gone. There'll be no more servicing. And eventually those reaction wheels, the key to making Hubble work, that ability to point very precisely, yeah. they break down. Yeah. They kept replacing them over the years, mm. over and over and over again. They've got a new set in now, but there's going to be a certain number of years for them and then they'll be gone. Well, I thought Hubble was in danger of being decommissioned at, at one point. And then they re-enabled re it or yeah, reenacted it. What was the story there? Well, the Do you main, remember that? Well, the main thing here is those, more than anything, after the dealing with the myopia where they actually did the correction, right. Hubble was designed to have upgrades. So they yeah. were able to bring it into the, into the shuttle and add new capabilities to it, new mm -hmm. modules, more sensitive uh, equipment, and, and so forth. They mm -hmm. did a s whole series of upgrades over half a dozen different uh, flights to it. Um, but in the end, there is spinning parts. Those reaction mm -hmm. wheels are literally gyro spinning gyroscopes, mm -hmm. and they wear out. Yeah. And so they kept replacing them. But now that there are no more shuttles, there's nothing to go up there and replace them ever again. Right. Unless they actually decide they're going to build a whole new kind of spacecraft that could do that. But right. that seems unlikely mm -hmm. in the time they have available to them. And in the meantime, they're developing new space telescopes to replace Hubble. Ar arguably, the James Webb telescope is dramatically more so advanced. So let's talk about the James Webb telescope. If you go to jwst.nasa.gov you can read all about the james webb space telescope so who was james webb anyway uh webb was an astro administrator and uh and just you know just uh, nasa has an interesting policy of every uh one of these observatories starts out with a code name something yeah. not that interesting like you know the advanced infrared space telescope but once you get it into orbit, it gets named for an important person, right. whether that is Webb, who's one of the NASA administrators, yeah. or Hubble, who named after Irwin Hubble, the mm -hmm. guy who basically showed that the universe was expanding. Or, Goddard. Uh, Isn't Goddard one? I think Goddard's one. Uh, Spitzer, the yeah. guy who actually came up with the idea of Hubble, is now there's a space telescope named for him. Uh, that's just that's and a normal isn't there a highway named the Jebs, James Webb Highway oh, in I Orlando, yeah. I think? There are lots of highways yeah. throughout Florida. It's kind of nice things. having a road named after you. It's nice having a road named for you. The, the, the big thing with James Webb is it's not going to be a low Earth space telescope. So, A, there are not going to be any maintenance on this space telescope. It's Once they launch it, it's going to be an L2. So, this is a large infrared optimized yeah. space telescope. 2018 is when they think they're going to launch this. And it'll find the first galaxies that formed in the early universe connecting the Big Bang to our Milky Way galaxy. So that's its mission. And so now it's in the visible spectrum with infrared. Right. So it's covering into the visual spectrum as well as infrared, which is one of the reasons they're putting it where they're putting it, right? By, by putting it out at L2, which means it's going to be one of the furthest away man-made objects we've ever had. That's well beyond the, the, uh, the moon. It's, it's out there. It's okay. in a very it, – because it needs to be extremely cold. Right. And so it has this – if you look at pictures of the uh, mock-ups of the James Webb, there's a massive sunshade. So is it going to be in the shade of the moon? No, no. So it it's, will stay cold? It's, it's still going to be – it has a big sunshade because it's going to be exposed to the sun. Okay. And it's, but the telescope itself is on the other side of the shade. Because so it, it needs to be powered protected. by solar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it will also be powered by solar power. Yeah. It is – and it's big. It's really big. And the, when you say really big. So the main optics on the Hubble, that, that, that mirror that was misground yeah. was eight foot across. Yeah. Okay? The biggest they'd ever flown. This is 20-something, right? 21 feet. Yeah. Now it's a it's a hexagonal uh, pattern and it actually folds up, so they're gonna they're gonna launch this in an Atlas V, 
And so it needs to be able to fit inside that uh, payload fairing. So it has to unfold. And it has to be seamless. Because yes. if you, th- again, we're talking about deep space things. There's no way to repair have it. a seam yeah. in, your, in the image. Yeah, nothing. And it's totally not repairable. So they have to, it's way over they budget. They have to nail it. They have blown the budget by three times now. <laughs> and they've blown their deadlines. Wait, this is NASA we're talking about. Well, so. NASA usually, you know, does pretty good. Yeah. You talk about their landers. Well, the rovers things. were the real, yeah. you know, wake-up call. Yeah, everybody loves those things were great. And those yeah. things were generally on and time, on cheap. budget. They did pretty well. Yep. Even something as crazy as Curiosity. Yeah. Which, you know. That's the one that bounced. No, Curiosity was the one they landed with the Sky Crane, which is even okay, matter. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The big, big one. Opportunity was the one that bounced. Opportunity Spirit and before that yeah. Sojourner were yeah. all the ones that bounced. Yeah. Uh, that used the airbags. But airbags can only go so big. I just love that story. It's you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. We wrap this thing in a big balloon and bounce it to the surface. <laughs> and I love the- <laughs> And it worked. I love the pictures of the orbiter flying over later on where they can see the bounce points. Yeah. Oh yeah, it yeah. bounced here, it bounced. Oh, there's the airbags there. It's great. There's- I love that. It's just yeah. basic physics. Although I still think the sky crane is the craziest thing that ever. That was crazy. But yeah. when you're going to invent stuff that has to have so many things go right, and if anything goes wrong, you get nothing. Yeah. You end up doing a ton of testing. In the end, you know, James Webb may be well over budget, but um, it is a unique piece of technology, and it has to be tested in a lot of different ways, and they are doing research. They're inventing new technology to make this the best telescope it can be. And it's going to be a million miles away. Well, yeah. 500,000. It's going to be far enough away that we ain't getting it back. Yeah. It's going to be out there. Right. So, yeah, L2 is, is a long way away from, uh, the, from, from the Earth itself, right? It's the point at which you have gravitational balance between the Earth and the Sun. So it naturally is sort of stationary in place. So according to the website, there will be four science instruments on web, the near-infrared camera, the near-infrared spectrograph, the mid-infrared instrument, and the fine guidance sensor and near-infrared imager and stillness spectrograph, all of which have awesome acronyms that you cannot pronounce. <laughs> so they're really trying to, trying to get some of the earliest images with this thing. Yeah, by making a much larger mirror and a much more sensitive collector, they're able to look further and further back in time. Now, they want to, to see the Big Bang. Well, it's trying to see that original and what the very first clumpings of matter look like in yeah. the beginning of the universe. Yeah. And the, the, that's what these early uh, galaxies should, should be like. And there's lots of theories that these mm-hmm. galaxies will actually be differently shaped. They might be spherical yeah. instead of flattened. Just, you know, those were early times. Yeah. But nobody knows for sure. And it's part of the, you know, the excitement about doing right. this. But at the same time, uh, James Webb is the follow-on to Hubble, and the whole point here is it does have a visual spectrum support. Right. We should be able to get what will be fun will be imaging the same things that Hubble imaged right. with this far more advanced telescope yeah. and just being able to compare the crispness of the resolution, how different things look when you can see them in more detail. Sure. Now, if you go to Wikipedia and look at list of space telescopes, there's a bunch of these and this is the some of the things we were talking about uh the third high energy astronomy observatory the compton gamma ray observatory cause b which i think you mentioned before gamma yeah a granat the high energy transient explorer so 
So some of these are NASA. Some of these are European. Uh, INTA, which is uh, Italian, I believe, right? No, Spanish. The INTA. Uh, so some of these are uh, government and some are NASA. And I don't see... Oh, there's one, a joint one between the USSR, which is the Soviet space program, but it doesn't... USSR doesn't exist anymore. It may not be flying anymore either. Yeah. And just because it's on the list, it means it's still operational. Yeah, it's true. But but it does seem like there, that there's a whole bunch of these out here. So what I, I guess what I'm getting at is what are the differences? Why do we need all these space telescopes? Um, you know, if you start looking at the time span between those things, you start mm-hmm. seeing a lot of this has to do with technological advances. Mm-hmm. But And again, you get back to different frequencies. So, for example, the Chandra Observatory. Which is another one of the great observatories launched by the by the shuttle as well. Okay, um, it was uh, lifted by Columbia. It's massive mm. because it's collecting X rays. So mm. they've actually found a way to they found a way to use mirrors to deflect X rays into a sensor, so they could pick up X rays rather than visible light. Now X rays are higher frequencies than a higher frequency, higher energy than visible light, but lower energy than gamma rays. So now, are these telescopes collecting data as well, or you know, and storing it, or are they just piping it back to Earth somehow? They always have buffers because yeah. you're not always in the right place. You know, the planet's spinning. Right. Uh, Chander is another one of the uh, is another one of uh, the not orbiting around lo- low Earth orbit. It's mm-hmm. out at a Lagrange point, and so it has to. It's only occasionally in view of a um, of a ground. Uh, Mm-hmm. station to collect data from so it has to collect those images and then send them down uh, and, and obviously there has to be communication between these telescopes and the ground in other yes. words to tell tell it where to go and i imagine that you know the universities and things that want hours on the telescope they want their time mm-hmm. so that they can you know if they're researching specific events or specific uh, celestial bodies. Yeah, there's always a competition for time on any right. telescope, whether it's terrestrial or yeah, right. in space. Right. So, every but I imagine it's pretty insane and intense w- with those space telescopes. Yeah, yeah. And you, especially when you say you go back to Hubble. Right. Because Hubble's an optical telescope, you don't want to point it too close to the sun. You can do damage yeah. to the optics. So, yeah, yeah. part of this is you, you had to decide what you want to image, and they got to figure out when's the safe time to image it. Right. Uh, and every time you move a, a telescope in any way, you are consuming some resources, whether that's just time on the reaction wheels or actual thrusters. Mm. So all of that has to be budgeted for. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot of great software there. Uh, a lot of software and a lot of time yeah. uh, and a lot of art. You know, that we get into the politics of science, yeah, too. Right. Who gets time on what? Uh, yeah. Especially when you deal with some of these telescopes where certain universities were in their development in exchange for guarantees on time. Right. Uh, but I would argue my favorite of all of the telescopes flying today. It's hard to lot love Hubble, mm-hmm. but uh, I think Kepler to me is the most exciting of the space telescopes. All right, tell us about Kepler. So Kepler uh, was launched in 2009. It's a relative, so it's a very young telescope, but its primary job was to find exoplanets. All right, so Kepler is the one that has been making the news recently. Yes. Because it's been finding all these Earth-like planets. And the the most interesting one was just just recently. recently. And, and the funny part, of course, is the observations of the so so Kepler's primary job was to look for Earth-sized planets in the right zone, what they call the Goldilocks zone, where right. the planet would actually have liquid water. Right. And the way it did that was to continually monitor the brightness of this hundred and forty-five thousand stars. So mm. it's looking for the planet to move in front of the star enough sure. to dim the star a bit. Right. 
but it's got to be sensitive enough to be able to deal with that very minute change. What's also interesting is that it has to be on the right axis. Yeah. Because it could be cir- circling the star on a horizontal on a on a perpendicular axis to where we are and you wouldn't see it you wouldn't see it so i mean and that's an interesting part of the math so the funny part is kepler was supposed to last seven and a half maybe 10 years Mm. but stuff's already broken down on kepler kepler's not working as well as it should have and that being said by the beginning of this year by the beginning of 2013 Mm -hmm. It already had found 2,740 candidate exoplanets. Wow. And confirmed 114. So the, the, you get into the whole other story here, like Drake's equation about, well, how many planets, if you're going to look for other civilizations, how many planets are there? Based on Kepler's observations so far, mm-hmm. they figure there's 17 billion Earth sized exoplanets That's in crazy. this galaxy. Some of these, and this, this, there was one, I think it was in February, where uh, they were conjecturing that just 13 light years away, there, which is about 77 trillion miles Only. or so, but relatively speaking, it's pretty close. Some of the Earth, most Earth-like planets are, have been found yep. just in our backyard. Well, it's kind of, and again, it blows up the whole science fiction. We're going to fly a spaceship to another star and then, and then scan all the planets. Right. It's like, ah, I think before we go to any star, we're going to have a pretty good idea of the planets that are there. Exactly. Uh, and the sad part about Kepler is that uh, in May of this year, they lost a second reaction wheel. Again, it's that whole pointing system. Right. And so they're not sure they can continue to operate it. And mm. it's still, you know, it's quote unquote, still in the warranty period. <laughs> you know, it's only been four years and it's supposed to run for seven. Yeah. But they figured there's so much data collected by Kepler that they're two or three years backlogged on just analyzing it all. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome space telescope. It's, it's one that it makes it my favorite is it's going out. You know, what are we going to do right. when we finally scan a planet that clearly is another Earth? Yeah. Uh, and Kepler hasn't got the instrumentation on it, but the next generation of these telescopes will have instrumentation on it to do spectral analysis of the atmosphere of that planet. Mm, sure. So now, we'll, what do you do when you find a planet that's in the right place? And, and has oxygen. Nitrox atmosphere. And carbon-based. And what if it's got, say, something unstable in its atmosphere like petrochemicals that would point to something technological going yeah, on on that planet. Right. Like, yeah. We're going to we're close to that. That's going to happen in the next few years that we're going to be able to do that kind of determination. Wow. But the biggest thing Kepler's done is just blown up this whole idea that planets are unique. Mm. Turns out planets show up around just about every kind of star. Mm. I think that takes us back to Arcid because yep. the thing that's issue about Arcid if we actually get to that 2 million dollar point is that all of us, we get a chance to actually participate in looking for exoplanets. And how cool is that, really? Ah, pretty darn cool. I want them to fly more of these telescopes. Let's uh, get more and more of them up I there. I agree. Well, I think, you know, if it, if the popularity of this first one is obvious, then, yeah. you know, they'll probably do more. Why wouldn't they? Well, there's nothing wrong with getting a picture of yourself in orbit. And make a hell of a business card. <laughs> but I think, the ba- you know, the other thing would be, once you've got a dozen of them up there, could you get them to all work together? As a synthetic giant telescope, all 12, you know, say a dozen of them all pointing at the same point at the same time. All they need is Ruby. Some good software <laughs> that could solve that problem. I knew Bob would laugh about that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I got to say about that, all Ms. Right. Franklin. Well, that's the show, I suppose. Hey, if you like these Geek Out shows, let us know. Send an email to .net rocks at franklins.net or just leave a comment on the website .netrocks.com. Or on any of our mobile apps, as Richard said earlier, just go to your favorite app store and search for .NET Rocks. 
All right, man. What's next for the geek outs? Uh, I think there's a whiskey show already in the can for July. And we could have done three hours on whiskey. <laughs> I think we're going gonna... to. This was great, Bob, because I was like, all right, I want to do the bourbon story. Rich is like, okay, 45 minutes of scotch. And then he's like, all right, you can go ahead and tell the bourbon story. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to go on more. But it's like, I could do two hours just on scotch. Here. It's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. Well, that's going to be a good one. I was down at the bar last night, and Richard was down there and giving lectures to the bartender oh, on yeah. scotch. I was reading my book peacefully. He's going on and on yeah. and scotching. They're pulling That's bottles the way it goes. Go shelf. out with Richard. It's an education. <laughs> All right, man. And, and Bob's reaction was to come over to me and say, you know entirely too much about this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online, Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a